Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 101 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that the UK government's Trash and Trace Service has been reported to the ICO for GDPR breaches after it was alleged that necessary data protection impact assessments had not been carried out before the service was implemented. We then stay on a COVID-related theme and we move over to Ireland and look at the Irish COVID-19 tracking app and how that's been received in the Republic of Ireland and the news is now going to be available in Northern Ireland this coming week. And then we go to Australia and still stay COVID-19 related. In Western Australia, a teenage hacker has attacked the Western Australian coronavirus database. We then move away from COVID-19 and look at a data breach at RBS, which has been reported by an ex-employee of the company. We then have news of the Blackboard data breach, which has affected universities in the UK, the USA and Canada. Following on from last week's judgment in the European Court which ruled out use of the EU-US Privacy Shield, this week we have an update from the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, with guidance notes for UK organisations in the use of BCRs after Brexit. We then have news that the Irish DPC has fined Tuzla over GDPR breaches. We then have news of a ransomware attack at Garmin. We then have news that more than 20 million VPN users have been warned of a massive data breach on some free VPN apps. We then have news that Instacart, a checkout provider, is denying reports of data breaches on the Instacart system. And we then have news that Couchsurfing is investigating a data breach in its systems. And then we finish this week with a look at a new browser add-on called Never Consent which makes light work of cookie consent forms. So as usual, a good mix of articles for you this week. We hope you find the articles useful and informative. And as always, if you have any feedback for us, please just email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, but unfortunately due to the volume we receive, we're not able to answer feedback emails individually. But please be assured we do read them, and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. In an embarrassing turn of events, the UK government has had to confess that its test and trace programme for the COVID-19 virus pandemic is unlawful. The government has admitted that its contact tracing programme is unlawful in a legal letter which confirms it's been running in breach of data protection laws since it was launched in May 2020. Confirmation the programme failed to adhere to privacy regulations comes as Sky News revealed that contractors working for NHS Test and Trace have been told they may be fired following reports of dozens of staff sharing patients' confidential data on social media. According to the legal letter, the government did not conduct a data privacy impact assessment, DPIA, which of course is required under GDPR, to ensure that breaches of patient information don't take place and of course this would be especially true in this case because of it handling sensitive data. The legal letter was sent in response to a challenge brought by the Open Rights Group, ORG, against the UK government for failing to confirm whether it had met the safeguards for the programme. In the letter, which has been seen by Sky News, the government's lawyers accept that the government was legally required to have a completed DPIA at the time test and trace launched on the 28th of May 2020. 
The lawyers add that a single one covering the whole of the project has still not been completed, but was being worked on, and that a number of DPIAs covering different parts of the programme were in place. A spokesperson for the UK Department of Health and Social Care drew a distinction between the programme itself being unlawful versus the way it was handling NHS patients' data being unlawful, claiming there's no evidence of data being used unlawfully. They stressed that the contact tracing programme had been developed quickly as part of the public health emergency caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. A spokesman said NHS Test and Trace is committed to the highest ethical and data governance standards, selecting, using and retaining data to fight the virus and save lives, while taking full account of all relevant legal obligations. When asked for the report in the Sunday Times, which found test and trace workers were sharing patients' confidential data on social media sites, was evidence of data being used unlawfully, the spokesman refused to comment. It's understood that workers at Test and Trace have been warned about confidentiality twice on the 13th of July and the 16th of July. For ORG, Jim Killock, the executive director, said, A crucial element in the fight against the pandemic is mutual trust between the public and the government, which is undermined by their operating the programme without basic privacy safeguards. The Information Commissioner's Office and Parliament must ensure that Test and Trace is operating safely and lawfully, he said. As we have already seen, individual contractors sharing patient data on social media platforms, emergent medial steps will need to be taken, Mr Tillich added. We've not yet had any feedback on this from the Information Commissioner's Office, but should we receive any in the next week, we will of course bring it to you in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. We mentioned last week that we would bring you an update on the Iris COVID-19 contact tracking app and how it was succeeding where the UK version developed by NHS Digital had failed. Well, we've now found out some more details about the Irish app. The app in the Republic of Ireland has now had over 862,000 downloads and the app works using technology provided by Apple and Google. And the feedback so far from the Department of Health and the Health Service Executive in the Republic of Ireland is that the app is working well and that since its launch, 91 users have received a close contact exposure alert. In other words, they've been told they've been in contact with another user who has tested positive for COVID-19 and should therefore get tested themselves. Now, when this video first came out, we were a little suspicious because the whole idea of the app is that it doesn't store any data centrally, so how on earth could the Republic of Ireland authorities know with any certainty how many contacts he had picked up? Well, it turns out that the Irish app is a little cleverer than we perhaps initially gave it credit for because it contains an option where it asks users, once they've been diagnosed with Top ID 19, whether they are happy to share their information with a centralised database. And if they say yes, then it does share that data with such a database. And that is where the figure of 91 users has come from. Now, of course, what that means is actually the app has probably picked up more than 91 users because... Probably no more than 50%, we would guess, of users who've been positively identified as having COVID-19 would have been happy to share their data centrally because that was always one of the big user issues with the app proposed by NHS Digital. The good news for the people of Northern Ireland is that in this coming week, the app, which is currently only in use in the Republic, is also going to be released in Northern Ireland. So the whole island of Ireland will have one solution for COID-19 track and trace. 
in terms of the mobile phone app. It'll be interesting to see what the take-up is in Northern Ireland once it becomes available. If it's anything like the take-up in the South, that would be encouraging. Although, even those in power in the South are saying that actually they would like to see a 60% take-up in the population. Now, obviously, that's going to take some time to achieve. However, the other positive news is that the developers of the Irish app have agreed to share their findings and indeed their technology with NHS Digital so there is a hope that it might accelerate the development of the NHS Digital app here in the rest of the UK. This app and its data is something we're obviously keeping a very close eye on and keeping an eye on any GDPR implications particularly in view of the UK track and trace falling foul of not having carried out a data protection impact assessment. And so if we get any more details on this trial from Ireland, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We travel to Western Australia now, where Western Australia's Premier, Mark McGowan, says a 15-year-old boy was allegedly involved in a data breach which saw thousands of sensitive medical records leaked online. The teenager from Mandurah is believed to be behind one of the biggest leaks of medical records in Western Australia's history. The alleged hacker, who has not been identified, describes himself online as a scriptedy, which is slang for someone who uses existing computer scripts or codes to hack into computers lacking the experience to write their own. Mr. McGowan said he had been advised that the site has been shut down and its associated pager service has been switched off. The hack involved Western Australia's confidential coronavirus management system, which stores thousands of medical alerts, notifications and requests, including doctor and patient names, the patient addresses, phone numbers and health concerns. It's understood that the hacker set up a public website which went live on the internet and released that confidential information to the world. The story broke on Nine News in Australia. More than 400 web pages, many communication and messages between health officials and doctors were posted on the website. Mr McGowan's office said the breach was associated with the use of a third-party pager service which the state's health department had now switched off. Mr McGowan said, It's very disappointing and disturbing. I learned last night that there was this pager arrangement in place. The advice House gave me this morning was they kept using the pages because an SMS was not certain of getting through. In light of what's occurred, they've stopped the use of pages and there will be a double SMS programme. Mr McGowan said the site involved had been shut down and the person involved spoken to by police. The individual who published this information, that person was discovered and police have intervened, he said. He said, I'm advised that the web shut down. It was a person under the age of 16 who obviously spends a lot of their life online. It appears that the data attack was not as complicated as it seems because the hardware used to send the message to the pages was simply a radio signal. It's thought that the teen programmer built software that intercepted the old unencrypted pager network and then automatically posted the confidential messages online. Mr. McGowan described the medical management system as not strictly coronavirus related and said it had been operating for about 12 years across successive governments. The website has been operating for months and Nine News also revealed that the information breaches go beyond COVID-19. They also leaked sensitive information across a number of government agencies including the Department of Justice, St John Ambulance, local councils and the fire service. The hacker's personal website says, I write code, apparently I'm unique. So it's a big deal and in my spare time I go to incidents I hear on my scanner and take photos. In order to track down the website and shut it down, the McGowan government contacted the Australian Cyber Security Centre in Canberra 
but police so far haven't charged the teenager because no government websites or databases have been accessed or compromised. Despite that, the state opposition has now demanded the Minister for Innovation and ICT, Dave Kelly, be sacked over the incident. The telecommunications company that runs the pager system used by the government, Vodafone, also says it urges the health department not to use it. However, our health authorities are refusing to accept responsibility. I'm absolutely calling for Kelly's resignation because the man is incompetent, opposition spokesman Jorn Sigma said today. This is not the first portfolio that he has bungled, but it's far more serious. If we receive any more updates on this from Australia, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. Royal Bank of Scotland is embroiled in a row with a former employee over customer data that raises serious issues over security issues when working from home. An ex-staff member claims the bank is refusing to take back the highly sensitive details of more than 1,600 customers, which she says was left with her more than a decade ago. RBS, which has recently changed its name to NatWest, allowed the staff member to take away customer files so she could work from home, selling mortgages and other loans to existing customers. The episode was later branded a data breach by regulator the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. Despite that, the bank has still failed to alert any customers who may have been affected. The former employee is particularly concerned that similar data breaches could occur more frequently now that most employees are working from home due to the coronavirus pandemic. This could happen if it has failed to make arrangements for the safe storage of data in the homes of its staff. Around 50,000 RBS staff have been told to work from home until 2021, despite government guidance this week urging people back to their office. The 1,600 customers are still completely unaware that their personal details, including account and sort codes, credit card details, direct debits and addresses, have been sitting in a cardboard box in the former employee's house for over a decade. The woman, who was dismissed by the bank in 2009 and had asked to remain anonymous, said she has been trying to return the data ever since she left. But she's been unable to reach an agreement with the bank over a secure handover and the personal details are still sitting in her home. In the most recent correspondence with her, the bank said it considered the matter was closed. She passed some, but not all, of the documents to the ICO in 2012. She says she retained some as evidence, with a view to reporting RBS to City Watchdogs. Before she hands over the remaining documents, she wants the bank to sign a statement that it has received and taken responsibility for the thousands of pages of data. But the bank has signalled it will only do this if she signs a clause stating that the bank had no idea the documents were provided to her and held by her. She claims this is misleading and feels unable to sign it. She says she has shown senior officials at the bank extracts of the documentation she held. The ICO has also stated in correspondence that it handed RBS some of the data during the course of an investigation several years ago. If the bank admits that it knew the nature of the data, NatWest may have to explain to angry customers why it did not tell them earlier that the security of their personal details had been compromised. Data protection rules introduced in 2018, the GDPR, but which did not apply at the time, state organisations must inform individuals without undue delay when a serious data breach has occurred. The former employee said, I just want to get this off my chest. I shouldn't have to have all this information and I don't want it. But customers deserve to know what happened and RBS should have told them about this breach years ago. She says that after raising concerns around the security of her working arrangement, she was fired in 2009. She made a claim for unfair dismissal, but this was dismissed. Following an investigation which concluded in 2012, the ICO found that RBS had breached the Data Protection Act. It took no further action and closed the case. Under Chief Executive Alison Rose, who was appointed last November, NatWest is attempting to clean up its image, which was sullied 
by its 45.5 billion taxpayer bailout in 2008. A spokesman for RBS maintains the bank does not know what is in the documents. The bank says that until 2019 it believed all the documents held by the ex-employee had been returned via the ICO in 2012. The spokesman added in 2019 the former employee alleged that she had, in fact, retained additional documentation. The bank continues to attempt to recover this information as no knowledge what it might contain. As with the documentation received in 2012, there's been no customer detriment and there's been no concerns that it may have been shared with other parties. If we receive any more information on this, either from RBS, NatWest or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal, we help people get jobs. More than 20 universities and charities in the UK, US and Canada have confirmed they are victims of a cyber attack that compromised a software supplier. Blackboard was held to ransom by hackers in May and paid an undisclosed ransom to cyber criminals. The US-based firm is the world's largest provider of education, administration, fundraising and financial management software. Blackboard has declined to comment on the scale of the breach. Blackboard is facing criticism after taking weeks to warn victims that data had been stolen. In some cases, the personal details were limited to those of former students who had been asked to financially support the establishment from which they had graduated, but in other cases it extended to staff, existing students and other supporters. The institutions which have been confirmed as being affected are the University of Birmingham, De Montfort University, the University of Strathclyde, the University of Exeter, the University of York, Oxford Brookes University, Loughborough University, University of Leeds, University of London, University of Reading, University College Oxford, Middlebury College Vermont, West Virginia University, New College of Florida, Severus High School, Catholic High School Portland, the Bishop Strachan School in Canada, University of North Florida, Ambrose University in Alberta in Canada, and Rhode Island School of Design in the US. Other organisations, including charities confirmed as affected, are The Choir With No Name, Vermont Food Bank, Vermont Public Radio, The Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, Human Rights Watch, and Young Minds. It's understood that not all Blackboard sites were affected, and University College London, Queen's University Belfast, the University of the West of Scotland, Islamic Relief, and Prevent Breast Cancer have all confirmed that although they use Blackboard, they've not been affected by the data breach. Blackboard has said it's working with law enforcement and third-party investigators to monitor whether or not the data is being circulated or sold on the dark web. For its part, the UK's Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, as well as the Canadian Data Authority, said they were informed about the breach last weekend, weeks after Blackboard discovered the hack. This course is in breach of GDPR, which requires organisations to report serious data breaches to the ICO within 72 hours of becoming aware of the data breach. An ICO spokesperson said, Blackboard has reported an incident affecting multiple data controllers to the ICO. We will be making inquiries to both Blackboard and the respective controllers and encourage all affected controllers to evaluate whether they need to report the incident to the ICO individually. Leeds University, in a statement, said, We want to reassure our alumni that since being informed by Blackboard of this incident, we've been working tirelessly to investigate what has happened in order to accurately inform those affected. No action is required by our alumni community at this time, although as ever we recommend that everyone remains vigilant. It is understood that the stolen data includes phone numbers, donation histories and events attended. 
credit card and other payment details are not believed to have been exposed. Blackboard aren't the first company to pay hackers who have compromised their data systems. If you remember, if you're already a listener to the DigiPal Weekly Show, you may remember that the currency company Travelet also paid a ransom to the people who took its data. However, doing so is not illegal, but does go against the advice of numerous law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, the NCA and Europol. Blackboard added that it had been given confirmation that the copy of data that had been removed had been destroyed. Our personal advice would always be never to pay the hacker, because you never know for certain that the data that's been taken has been destroyed, even if the hacker says it has, and you may leave yourself open to repeat attacks. And also, if organisations get into the habit of paying the hackers, it will only encourage more hackers to try and steal data from other third-party organisations, which of course is in no one's interest. If we receive any update on this from Blackboard or from the ICO, or from any of the universities involved, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Wicked! Thanks, Mike! Following on from last week's decision by the European Court to invalidate the EU-US privacy shield and the recommendation from the ICO that more weight should be placed on the standard contractual clauses and that's something which we are working on all of our clients with and if you would like us to help you on that journey we would of course be delighted to do so. Please just drop an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get back in touch with you and guide you through what needs to be done. But on top of the ruling over the EU-US Privacy Shield, the European Data Protection Board has now released an information note on binding corporate rules, BCRs, which provides guidance for groups of undertakings or enterprises which have the UK ICO as their competent supervisory authority, the BCR Lead SA. Binding corporate rules are a means of legitimising transfer of personal data outside the EEA under the EU GDPR. With Brexit coming, BCR holders having the UK ICO as their BCR Lead SA need to identify a new BCR Lead SA in the European Union in accordance with the existing regulatory guidance and must amend their BCRs before the end of the Brexit transition period on the 31st of December 2020. For BCRs already approved under GDPR, the new BCR lead SA in the EEA will have to issue a new approval decision following an opinion from the European Data Protection Board. Such approval by the new BCR lead SA is not required for BCRs for which the UK ICO acted as the BCR lead SA under Directive 9546EC, which was, of course, the predecessor to GDPR. It is important to note that current BCR holders will not be able to rely on their BCRs as a valid transfer mechanism of transfers of personal data outside of the EEA in the absence of required changes and or a new approval before the end of the transition period. So, once again, placing even more emphasis on the need to get good standard contractual clauses in place. Also, groups of undertakings or enterprises for which BCRs are at the review stage by the ICO need to identify their new BCR lead SA before the end of the transition period, 
which again, just remind you, is the 31st of December 2020. The new BCR lead SA will take over the application and formally initiate an approval procedure subject to an opinion of the European Data Protection Board. In order to assist such controllers and processors, the information note contains a checklist of elements that need to be amended for the BCR lead SA change in the context of Brexit. The checklist primarily consists of an overview of BCR criteria, which are relevant in the context of a BCR lead SA change, and for each specific criterion, the European Data Protection Board provides practical comments indicating which elements of the BCRs are most likely to be amended due to the BCR lead SA change. Some key comments provided by the EDPB in the checklist include that groups of undertakings or enterprises need to ensure that UK controllers and processors are correctly shifted from the exporter to the importer side of the BCR. The new entity taking liability for any violations of the BCRs by other BCR members outside of the EEA is located in the EEA and has sufficient financial means to cover any damages in connection with violation of the BCR. And any reference to the competent SA in relation to cooperation reporting, etc., competent courts or national jurisdiction refers to EEA SA's courts and jurisdiction and not UK SA's courts and jurisdiction. Following this month's REMS 2 case, BCRs may hold increasing importance as a means of legitimising data transfers from the European Union to the rest of the world, although, as I say, we personally are recommending more of a move towards standard contractual clauses. If you wish to read the full recommendation note, you can find it on our website at https www.gdprweeklyshow.com forward slash E-D-P-B-B-C-R. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. It is understood that TUSLA, the Irish Child and Family Agency, recently accepted a €40,000 fine from the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC. The fine is in respect of a breach that involved Tulsa mailing a letter detailing allegations of abuse to a third party who then posted the correspondence on social media. According to the Regulatory Activity Report published by the DPC on the 23rd of June 2020, the DPC has three separate inquiries ongoing in relation to data breaches involving Tulsa. It is not immediately clear whether the latest fine of €40,000 is in addition to the earlier fine of €75,000 issued by the DPC against Tulsa in respect of a different breach. This will become clearer when the DPC publishes the inquiry reports. According to the Regulatory Activity Report published by the DPC on the 23rd of June 2020, in April 2020, the Commissioner issued a decision in respect of an own volition inquiry regarding three personal data breaches notified to the DPC by Tesla. These breaches occurred when Tesla failed to appropriately redact documents when sharing them with third parties. The inquiry commenced on 24 October 2019 and examined whether or not Tesla had discharged its obligation in connection with the breaches in order to determine whether or not any provisions of the GDPR and or the Irish Data Protection Act 2018 had been contravened by Tesla. In its decision, the DPC found that Tesla infringed Article 32.1 of the GDPR by failing to implement appropriate measures with regard to the redaction of documents. The decision also considered one of the notified personal data breaches with regard to the duty to notify the DPC without undue delay pursuant to Article 33.1 of GDPR. Tesla notified the DPC of this breach five days after becoming aware of it. 
The decision found that this constituted an undue delay in the circumstances and found that Tesla had infringed Article 33.1 of GDPR. The decision reprimanded Tesla, ordered it to bring its processing into compliance with Article 32.1 of GDPR and imposed an administrative fine of €75,000. It is understood an application to confirm the administrative fine is currently pending before the circuit court. In Inquiry 2, disclosure of the identity of a complainant to a third party, the Commissioner issued a decision regarding another own volition inquiry concerning Tesla. This inquiry concerned one personal data breach that Tesla notified to the DPC on the 4th of November 2019. The inquiry commenced on the 11th of December 2019 and examined whether or not Tesla had discharged its obligations in connection with the subject matter of the breach to determine whether or not any provisions of the GDPR and or the 2018 Data Protection Act had been contravened by Tesla. The breach concerned a disclosure to a third party of the identity of data subjects who had made allegations of abuse and details of the allegations made. The letter disclosing the details was later shared on social media by the recipient of the letter. In its decision, DPC found that Tesla infringed Article 32.1 of GDPR by failing to implement organisational measures appropriate to risk. The decision also considered a breach with regard to the duty to notify the DPC without undue delay pursuant to Article 33.1 of GDPR. This breach was notified to the DPC over 29 weeks after Tesla became aware of it. The decision found that Tesla infringed Article 33.1 by failing to notify the DPC of the breach without undue delay, the decision reprimanded Tesla, ordered it to bring its processing into compliance with Article 321 of GDPR and impose an administrative fine reported to be €40,000. Tesla has 28 days from receipt of the decision to decide whether it wishes to appeal the decision. However, according to local reports, the fine has been accepted by Tesla. According to the report issued by the DPC, the third decision involving Tesla is currently still at the decision-making stage. When we have an update on this from the DPC or from indeed from Tuzla, we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Garmin has been forced to shut down its tool centre's website and some other online services after a ransomware attack encrypted the smartwatch maker's internal network and some production systems. The US company shut down its services, including the official Garmin website and all customer services, including phone lines, online chat and email. The attack had a significant impact on Garmin watch owners as it also shut down the Garmin Connect service, which they rely on to synchronise their sporting activities such as running, swimming and cycling with a smartphone app to monitor their performance. In messages on its website and shared on Twitter, the company apologised to users and explained the extent of the shutdown. We are currently experiencing an outage that affects Garmin.com and Garmin Connect, the company said. This outage also affects our tool centres and we are currently unable to receive any tools, emails or online chat. We are working to resolve this issue as quickly as possible and apologise for this inconvenience. It is not yet known if the attack involved any customer data being lost or stolen. The attack is also understood to have affected Garmin's aviation database services Fly Garmin, which supports aviation navigational equipment and some production lines in Asia, according to ZDNet.com. Aircraft pilots told the tech website that they had not been able to download new Garmin software with up-to-date versions of the aviation database, which is a legal requirement for flying. The Garmin Pilot app, which is used to schedule and plan flights, was also hit by the attack. The company has not officially said it was a ransomware attack, however company employees right now on social media after the incident all described it as such. The Taiwanese factories are understood to have been closed for two days of maintenance on Friday and Saturday, and we're told it's been caused by a virus. This is clearly an ongoing situation at Garmin, so if we receive any updates from Garmin, we will of course bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
Garmin has been forced to shut down its tool centre's website and some other online services after a ransomware attack encrypted the smartwatch maker's internal network and some production systems. The US company shut down its services, including the official Garmin website and all customer services, including phone lines, online chat and email. The attack had a significant impact on Garmin watch owners as it also shut down the Garmin Connect service, which they rely on to synchronise their sporting activities such as running, swimming and cycling with a smartphone app to monitor their performance. In messages on its website and shared on Twitter, the company apologised to users and explained the extent of the shutdown. We are currently experiencing an outage that affects Garmin.com and Garmin Connect, the company said. This outage also affects our tool centres and we are currently unable to receive any tools, emails or online chat. We are working to resolve this issue as quickly as possible and apologise for all this inconvenience. It is not yet known if the attack involved any customer data being lost or stolen. The attack is also understood to have affected Garmin's aviation database services FlyGarmin, which supports aviation navigational equipment and some production lines in Asia, according to ZDNet.com. Aircraft pilots told the tech website that they had not been able to download new Garmin software with up-to-date versions of the aviation database, which is a legal requirement for flying. The Garmin Pilot app, which is used to schedule and plan flights, was also hit by the attack. The company has not officially said it was a ransomware attack, however company employees writing on social media after the incident all described it as such. The Taiwanese factories are understood to have been closed for two days of maintenance on Friday and Saturday, and we're told it's been caused by a virus. This is clearly an ongoing situation at Garmin, so if we receive any updates from Garmin, we will of course bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. More than 20 million users of free VPN virtual private network apps have been warned that their metals may have been subject to a data breach. It's estimated that around 1 billion online metals have been exposed in the massive data breach. VPN mentor cybersecurity researchers claim that the server was completely open and accessible, exposing private user data for everyone to see. It's claimed that the affected VPN apps include UFO VPN, Fast VPN, Free VPN, Super VPN, Flash VPN, Secure VPN, and Rabbit VPN. For VPN Mentor, their lead researcher, Noam Rotem, said his team found entries within the exposed database that contain personal data about users such as email addresses, home addresses, cleared text passwords, IP addresses and other identifying information. The lack of basic security measures in a central part of a cybersecurity product is not just shocking, he said, it also shows a total disregard for standard VPN practices that put their users at risk. Some of the VPN services believed to be affected also offer premium services for a fee. The researchers claim they were also able to view logs of people subscribing to those with some payment information. It appears that the apps on the exposed server all share a common Hong Kong-based owner and developer. A spokesperson for UFO VPN and FastVPN said, due to personnel changes caused by Top ID 19, we've not found bugs in server firewall rules immediately, which will lead to the potential risk of being hacked. The companies also claimed they didn't collect all the types of data that the researchers say they found. Moby Potato, the company representing FastVPN, confirmed the server was at risk from June 29th to July 13th. The other companies did not respond to requests for comment, and the contact email provided for RabbitVPN bounced back. We think, really, this is a clear example of you get what you pay for, and we would distinctly always steer our clients away 
from the use of free VPNs. It's always better to go for a paid-for service in the case of VPNs, particularly if you're using a VPN for commercially sensitive information. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal, we help people get jobs. E-commerce checkout provider Instacart are denying claims that they have suffered a data breach this week. Despite what appear to be hundreds of thousands of Instacart customers' details being sold on the dark web, including the last four digits of their credit cards, Instacart are denying that any data breach has taken place. A spokesman said, We're not aware of any data breach at this time. We take data protection and privacy very seriously. Outside the Instacart platform, attackers may target individuals using phishing or credential stuffing techniques. In instances where we believe a customer's account may have been compromised through an external phishing scam, outside of the Instacart platform or other actions, we proactively communicate to our customers to auto-force them to update their password. But Nick Espinoza, head of security firm Security Fanatic, said the data from Instacart on the dark web looked recent and totally legitimate and two women confirmed that they were Instacart customers with their last Instacart purchases, matching the dates the data was on the dark web, and that some of the data being sold did relate to them. One woman, Hannah Chester, said if Instacart is aware of what had happened and isn't saying so, that's problematic. It's understood that the account information on the dark web is for sale for about $2 per customer. Personal data has reportedly been added very recently through June or July, with the most recent entry being July the 22nd. Instacart added a shopper safety feature to its app in May, which the company said would help customers stay safe during the pandemic. The feature included identity verification tools and an updated contactless delivery option. There was also a Get Emergency Assistance button added, which was to help customers quickly access medical assistance if needed. We will continue to press Instacart on this, and if we have any update for you, we will bring it to you in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and I don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Wicked! Thanks, Mike! Couchsurfing, an online service that lets users find free lodgings, is investigating a security breach after hackers began selling the details of 17 million users on Telegram channels and hacking forums. It's understood that the couchsurfing data is currently being sold for $700. From those who've seen the data, it's understood that it's not been possible to identify who the hacker is, but that the couchsurfing data, which first appeared in private Telegram channels last week, has been advertised as being taken from Couchsurfing servers earlier this month in July 2020. The sample of data that we've seen includes user details such as user IDs, real names, email addresses and Couchsurfer account settings. User passwords were not included, although it's unclear if hackers got their hands on passwords and simply chose not to share them. When we approached Couchsurfing, a spokesman did not immediately provide an on-the-record statement but said that the company was already engaged with a cyber security firm to investigate the breach alongside law enforcement agencies. While the couchsurfing data was initially shared in private Telegram channels this week, the company's data was slowly made its way onto more public hacker forums, including the infamous Raid forum. Couchsurfing is currently ranked as one of the top 11,000 most popular websites on the internet, according to Alexa. 
The service, founded in 2004, lists 12 million registered users on its site, but the company has posed inactive users a few years ago when it listed a total of 15 million registered users. The impact of the couchsurfing breach is lower than other security incidents at other companies as password information was not included. This means that the couchsurfing data cannot easily be used for identity theft. However, the email addresses can be used for spam lists by spam and malware distribution operations. One possible theory for the source of the data is that the couchsurfing data could have originated from a misplaced backup file as most companies readily back up their user databases and don't usually include password strings in their backups. Furthermore, most backup files are also stored in cloud hosting environments that sometimes get exposed online by accident in misconfigured storage mediums. Think of the number of times that we've mentioned Amazon AWS in previous episodes of the GDPR Witcher show, or after firewalls or VPNs go down, exposing a company's internal infrastructure on the public internet. If we receive any update from this from Couchsurfing, we will of course bring it to you at the earliest possible opportunity. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We don't often get to review browser add-ons, but if you are tired of the consent boxes which seem to pop up on every website now, and quite rightly of course, but the consent boxes that pop up asking for cookie consent, well if you use either a Chrome or Firefox browser, then a new add-on may be of interest to you. The add-on is called Never Consent, and what it does is it simply says no to any cookie consent request form. So it just saves you those extra clicks, and it seems to work very well in the brief time that we've had a chance to play with it. The pop-ups which appear on sites to ask for you consent to the use of cookies are of course there for all the right intentions with regard to cookie regulations, but some sites check a user's location to determine whether the consent prompts need to be displayed, while others just display them to anyone entering the site. And what started with good intentions has quickly turned the internet into consent hell, particularly for users who use lots of different websites, because users are bombarded with these prompts quite frequently. While it's possible to also deny giving consent manually, it's not really productive to react to consent prompts regularly. To make matters worse, most sites use cookies to determine what your response to the prompt was, and if cookies get deleted regularly or denied outright, then prompts will be displayed on every time you visit the site. The new Firefox and Chrome add-on, Never Consent, has been designed to provide an automated solution for users of those browsers. It will refuse GDPR consent on any site that is loaded in the web browser providing that the site uses a consent platform that the add-on supports. The latest version at the time of this broadcast supports a good dozen consent platforms including Cookie Law Info, Cookie Consent, Contrast, OneTrust, Consent Manager and Didomi. All you need to do is install the extension in your supported browser, either Firefox, Google Chrome or now Microsoft Edge. And the extension works automatically in the background to refuse any GDPR consent prompt right away that the extension recognises. The extension itself is open source and you can check out the source on GitHub. Additional GDPR platforms are already on the project's to-do list and the project team is looking for a solution to deal with custom GDPR prompts that are not powered by any of the widely used platforms. The extension comes without any options and just works right after installation. If you have a browser add-on which you would recommend and is GDPR related, then we're always delighted to take a look at them and consider them for inclusion in future episodes of GDPR Weekly Show. So please just send details of the add-on to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com and we will follow up with you. 
So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.